Our scripture lesson today uh, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's admonition uh, to the young pastor Timothy as he teaches him about the role of scripture in the early church. Let's share in God's good word together. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. God, with all the changes in the world, we can make our homes warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We can light up the night and make it dark in the day. Do we still need God? I need God. Do you need God? Yeah. Does our world need God? All I have to do is look at the events of this week and know that the world desperately needs people who follow a Savior who would give himself for others and give his life rather than take life. Very important what we do here. It's very important what we do here. Who needs God? Um, As we begin, um, I I think it's it's beautiful uh, and Holy Spirit uh, combined that we would be giving out third grade Bibles uh, on the very week that we talk about the role of the Bible in our lives. Uh, It's something that um, certainly for the pastors we've given our lives to, the studies of their scripture. Um, for each of us, uh, about a 90-hour master's uh, program, and and then some, um, that we would spend our life and move our families and and do um, whatever we needed to do to sit under the authority of Scripture. And what does it mean for our life? Paul, when he's talking to Timothy, uh, boils this down to roughly this, that the purpose of Scripture is to make us wise for salvation, to how to live into the life that Jesus has come to give us to improve us, to school us for every good work. It's not so that we can debate. It's not so that we can um, set it aside. It's not certainly for us to use it as a weapon with those with whom we disagree. It is to train us up, to equip us for every good work for the very transformation of the world. And as we read the Bible, we have to continue to remind ourselves and warn ourselves, is this drawing me closer to Christ or is it simply giving me information to distance myself from the will of God? Because now I know better, right? I know the scriptures. I can use it to my advantage. And be very, very careful about that. Jesus would get crossways with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Friends, they knew the scriptures forwards and backwards, but it didn't mean they followed Jesus. 
The scripture is to help us follow Jesus. Will you say that with me? The scripture is to help us follow Jesus. That's its place. So as a way of introduction, I invite you to take out your sermon notes, if that's helpful to you. Um, we uh, are borrowing much of the content of this from a sermon series Andy Stanley did a while back, uh, and we're translating it into our community. Um, we pray that it's helpful to you. Um, one of the things that we become more and more aware of as, as we talk to in our clergy circles is that roughly 25% of Americans now report no faith involvement. Um, no faith involvement at all. Um, in the church realm, they call these folks nuns. No affiliation. Uh, do you have any affiliation? No, none. Uh, there's another group that sits in there, and those are called the Duns. They used to go to church, but now they don't. And, and so uh, many, uh, particularly mainline Protestant denominations, we're asking why. Why are people not coming to church? And what we find is that there are all sorts of reasons that don't have anything to do with Jesus. They have to, a lot to do with the culture of church. Um, and so if you feel like uh, you were here last week or you feel like even this week that perhaps uh, I'm, I'm poking uh, you, uh, know that I'm poking myself. I'm poking pastors. I'm poking the role of the church. And, and are we doing a faithful job of leading people to follow Jesus in a way that's life-giving and transformative to the world? Last week, we talked about something I called pejoratively baby gods. Baby gods. Because, and I called them baby gods because they're not grown-up gods. They're not the real God. They can't get them there. Matter of fact, we, we wouldn't even um, capitalize them. They're baby gods. They're little gods. Right? Now, um, I, I did that because I'm trying to, to lighten up a very difficult and heavy topic because many of us, myself included, have fallen for different idols. And, and these idols will always fail us. Uh, the one that, that got me for years and still gets me from time to time is bodyguard God. We talked about that last week. Bodyguard God is the God that says nothing bad's ever going to happen to you because I'm God. And, and when we travel, right, every time we leave the driveway, not every time, but when we're going on a trip, we stop and we pray, right? Lord, bless us. Keep us safe as we travel. Is that a bad prayer? No, it's a good prayer. Um, but I've lost good friends that were good Christians to car accidents. Doesn't mean God doesn't exist. Doesn't mean God doesn't answer prayer. Right? Bodyguard God. Uh, we pray over men and women in the military all the time. And we're just thrilled when they come home. But they don't always. And some of the people that don't come home are some of the most wonderful, loving Christian people you'd ever want to meet. And we don't give up our faith in God because nothing bad ever happened to us. And the reason we, we put the cross front and center is because this is what God transformed. He took the very worst kind of death and evil and made it life for us in the resurrection. Certainly anybody who claims Christianity as our faith cannot believe in a God that doesn't let anything bad happen to you. When his own son said, let this cup pass from me, and God said, no. This is the path for the salvation of the world. So we don't believe in bodyguard guard. We don't believe in boyfriend, girlfriend God. That, you know, that last uh, night of camp, summer camp, woo, uh, you know, touchy-feely God. We don't believe that. Now, God, we feel God sometimes. We see God sometimes. Sometimes we don't. Doesn't mean God's not there. Uh, many of you all perhaps grew up in a guilt God church. You went to church because you felt guilty if you didn't. Uh, you know, God's watching you. you no, know, God's watching you. Um, that's, not, that's not God either. And so um, after last week, I had some people that really helped them, but I also had some other people I cared deeply about. They said, you know, you, 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 almost, you almost sounded a little glib last week, like, like you weren't taking the real um, deconversion stories as seriously as, as perhaps um, we would want to. And, and let me say this. If last week you were here... And, and I was hurtful to you in any way, let me apologize. That was not my intention. What, what my intention is, is to create an on-ramp 
for anyone who's struggling with faith, who has questions about faith, to know that this is a safe place to ask those questions. We will walk with you. We will come alongside you. And people who gave up on Christianity, um, we're not poking fun at them. What we're saying is, you know what? You're not alone. There's a lot of folks that gave up on Christianity because we were hurt by something. We had a tragic event in our life. We lost somebody that was important to us, or it just didn't make sense to us in our mind. And if you're coming back to faith or you have a friend who's thinking about faith, maybe they used to go to church, this is a great place to come and walk that out together with people who love you and support you, will pray for you, and also challenge you to grow up and mature in your faith that it's no longer our Sunday school faith. Amen? Does this make sense? So everybody's welcome here. We'll work towards our salvation together with fear and trembling, with Jesus' love and grace. Now, um, with the risk of throwing everything I just said out the window, let's try this. Jesus loves me, this I... Oh, see, you do know this song. Yeah. Some of you even know the next line, don't you? What is it? Man, you are advanced. For the Bible tells me so, right? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Now, anybody in here's experience? You were walking through your living room at four years old, and the Bible on the coffee table said, hey, Jesus loves you. No, the Bible didn't tell you so, did it? No, the Bible didn't tell you so. It's not true. Grandma told you so, right? Or your mom told you so. Or your dad, or your brother, or maybe later in life, a really loving youth director was there when you'd come to your wit's end, and you were this dorky, braces, seven-year-old with no friends, and the only people that would receive you was your youth group at Frontier Elementary on Wednesday nights playing nine square and basketball. And you were loved by Jesus and Jesus' people. Or maybe you got to college and you had your first bad breakup, and you were suicidal, and your campus director, campus minister, your roommate came alongside of you and prayed for you and reminded you that you weren't alone, that Jesus loved you, the Holy Spirit was there to guide you and help you and support you and transform this event. And you came to faith. Yes, Jesus loves you, but the Bible didn't tell you so. Somebody who loved you told you so. And the Bible, very importantly, informed that person. Of what Jesus is like. The Bible told them. How to help you. And to love you. And to listen to you. And to forgive you when they had wronged you. And you were still there for them. Does this make sense? You see our faith friends. Is a, is a contact sport. Now. Hey, let's just run this experiment. And I, I'd, love it, I'd love it if you raise your hand. Anybody in the room. Go to the library one day. As an atheist. Pick up a Bible. Read it all the way through. And become a Christian. Anybody? It's happened. Nobody here. Nobody in the first service either. It happened for Augustine. Um, St. Augustine opened up a Bible, read it, came to faith. Made sense to him. But I think we know that story because it's so rare. Let's try this. How many of you all came to faith in church with mom, with grandma, with an aunt, uncle, friend, relative, uh, confirmation class, youth group, um, or by another person. How many, of, how many of that? That's how it works. That's been my experience as well. That it, the Bible is translated to us through other people. Perhaps you came from a church that said this. If the Bible says it, that 
Some of you do know that. That settles it. That settles it. Well, friends, as, as United Methodist, that's not the way we view Scripture. The Bible says it, and we wrestle with it. We really wrestle with it, with the very best that we are, with our minds, our heart, our soul, our strength, with everything that we are. We study, we look at the text, we look at the context, we interpret the Bible by the Bible. Say that with me. We interpret the Bible by the Bible. When you get to a thorny passage, we have to look at other passages in the Bible and see if it matches up over time. Dallas Willard, uh, what I think is one of the greatest theologians of my lifetime, uh, Southern Baptist minister, uh, philosophy professor at USC for years, now passed on. He would say this, if the Bible says it once, don't worry about it. Really, I mean, and this is a guy that's given his life to studying the Bible. I was like, wow. He said, but if it says it more than once, you better figure out why and follow it. And you'll notice that when Jesus teaches, he often will teach in threes. Even in one story, he'll tell you three examples of the same thing. We really need to pay attention when we see those things. But we've got to be able to interpret the Bible by the Bible. So what is the role of Scripture in our lives? And if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And there are some people that we love, um, maybe they're struggling intellectually, they've read something in the Bible, and it, they just can't do it. It just doesn't make sense to them. And for many of us who live in suburban uh, America, we're like, well, you just have to. Well, well, what if the Bible says this? Slaves, obey your masters. It says that. Does that settle it for you? Done for me. I pray it never will. That when the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters, we better figure out why. What's the context? And of course, we know now, if you study that through, that the belief was that Jesus was coming back on Thursday. And there was no governmental structure to allow that slave to become free. It was much safer, stronger, better for that slave to obey their master for the next three days than to be dead. It's not true today. It's not our context at all. So when we, when we come to these really hard passages, we have to figure out what is going on, and we interpret the rest of the Bible by the Bible. And of course, if you're going to do that then, then you go back to Exodus and you see that no one should own another person, that God's action was to free his people from slavery, to deliver them, not to keep them there, right? So we have to look at the Bible as a whole. Now, Andy Stanley goes on and says something uh, that I think is really wise and sort of shocking. He says it like this. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Right? Now, if you come from a Bible church, I'm really stepping on you for a moment. But hold on. Right? Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. He's right about that. If, if, if you can't find your birth certificate this afternoon, do you think you're going to vaporize? No. Of course not. And if the Bible disappeared tomorrow, our faith doesn't have to vaporize. It doesn't have to. You see, your birth certificate exists because you exist, because you happened. And the Bible exists because God happened. God is alive. God is raised in Jesus Christ, and the whole Bible is about Jesus. It really is. It points to Jesus. And we have a Bible because the risen Savior, Messiah, is among us. And that's important we understand. Now, in the next minute or two, I'm going to take you through about four months of seminary. Here we go. This is a timeline uh, that many people don't spend much time thinking about, praying about, or studying. 
Um, and the timeline, you'll notice here, is not exact with your sermon notes. And this is why. If you were to, to look at calendars, right, and you go to the 16th century in the Gregorian calendar, what you're going to find is that the calendars shift. Uh, there was one sort of way of dating time. And then in the 16th century said, hey, let's do this. A.D., uh, the year of our Lord, uh, or B.C., before Christ. And when they reset the calendar... It's now believed, many scholars believe, that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. Isn't that weird? Because Jesus was born four years before Jesus was born. Right? All time. So, so many scholars believe that Jesus was born at 4 B.C. to 2 B.C. But for this, let's just start with zero. Let's just clean that up. We're going to be plus or minus four years. Okay? So, then Jesus teaches, grows up. We know when, we know where, we know to whom. And he does miracles, uh, feeds 5,000, and then he dies. He's publicly tried uh, by the Roman government, uh, by the Jewish temple, and he's crucified. Is that our story? Not yet. What's our story hinge on? The resurrection. Lots of people crucified, friends, by the tens of thousands all around Jerusalem. Jesus is the only one who predicted his death, who predicted his resurrection, and pulled it off. We listen to him. I suggest anyone who does that in your realm of influence, if they can tell you that, listen to them. Right? That's a big deal. So in 30 or 33, again, you're giving yourself a little wiggle room depending on when Jesus is born. Right? We have the crucifixion, resurrection, and then Jesus walks the earth for 40 days until he ascends. You've got 10 days, and then you've got Pentecost. In the book of Acts chapter 2, things start to change with the beginning of the Holy Spirit. But notice, Constantine doesn't come to power until 312. That's when Christianity became the state religion of Rome, not before. So from 0 to 312, there's no Bible. There's no state religion. There's a persecuted, beat down, we'll kill you if we find out you're Christian culture. How old is the United States? 200 and something, right? This period is longer than we've been a country. And it's in this period that Christianity goes from Jesus and the 12 to 120 in the upper room to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to the majority population in Roman Empire from Italy all the way to the Middle East, from Turkey to Africa. Now more than half of all the world under the Roman Empire is Christian. Underground Growing, growing, growing. And sociologists now believe that Constantine not only bowed the knee to Christ because of a vision, but because it was the only way he was going to stay in power. Because Christians hadn't grown that much. And notice that the Bible doesn't come into play until 388. 388. There's no Bible. The Bible that you and I read today did not even come close to being uh, put together until 388. There was no Bible in the early church. Not at all. And even the Bible we have today has been changed uh, at the Protestant Reformation in 1517. So think of it like this. The first, second, and third century Christians that grew the most, that grew the deepest, that was persecuted and endured, believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. Person to person, heart to heart, life to life, example to example. Before. You understand the power of this. Is the Bible important? Absolutely. Absolutely important. Super important, but not necessary for salvation in the first 300 years. 
Now, they had some scriptures that were Old Testament, but the New Testament was really in letters and, and, and documents all sort of around, not even compiled yet. So for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. And what was that event? The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. So I would submit to you, I know this is dangerous because there's a lot of Bible worshipers around, but we don't worship the Bible. Who do we worship? Jesus. We worship a person, a relationship. So our foundation is Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the center of our faith. The Bible informs and influences that fact. So the question was, did Jesus raise from the dead? Did he? That's, that's where our faith hangs. Is Jesus raised? Is he alive today? Do you know him? And the Gospels, if you know them, same with me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they say yes. Matthew's eyewitness account says, yes, he did. Absolutely, yes, he did. Um, written down probably somewhere between 40 and 55. Now, if you were like me and you went to seminary back in the 90s, uh, many of the liberal Protestant scholars, particularly in the 50s and 60s, um, were, were doing some historical critical analysis. And what some of them will say is that Matthew wasn't written until about 140. That's problematic. Later scholarship now, looking at what sociologists now believe and scholarship now believe, now believe that Matthew was written as early as 40 to 55. Why do they believe that? One interesting finding. You remember back on um, the graph where we had 0, 30, and 70? What happened in 70? The destruction of the entire city of Jerusalem, the temple. And when the temple exploded, you could see it almost 100 miles away. It was, it was catastrophic. Everybody in Rome knew about it. Everybody, in, like in Syria, knew about it. Everybody in Jerusalem knew about it. You were dead or you left because they expelled all the Jews, all the Christians. It was terrible, terrible persecution. Burned to the ground. Okay? Now, isn't it interesting that nowhere in the New Testament, none of the Gospels for sure, uh, and I don't think even in the writings of Paul, mention the destruction of the temple. Why not? I mean, how do you miss that? There's only two really huge things that happened in the first century. Uh, one is the resurrection, and the other is the destruction of the temple. All the Gospels talk about the resurrection. There's no mention of the destruction of the temple. Why not? It hadn't happened yet. So we believe that all the Gospels were written pre-70. That, that's, a, that's a big deal. So these are eyewitness accounts. At 40, Jesus, if Jesus dies in 30, 33... Matthew seen him, walked with him, talked with him. There he is. There he goes. So Matthew says, yes, he did. Mark says, yes, he did. Oh, absolutely. Yes, he did. He's raised from the dead. Now, you'll notice that this dating puts uh, Mark's eyewitness account right after the resurrection. Now, this might confuse you. You'll say, well, well, I thought Matthew was written first. Nope, Matthew's written second. Mark was written first. Almost all scholarship understands that. And Matthew and Luke had Mark to work with. So pretty much everything that's in Mark, you find and Matthew and Luke, and then Matthew has its own additions, and Luke has its own additions. So, but Mark's an eyewitness account as well, 33 to 40 AD, absolutely, yes, he did, he raised from the dead. Luke, absolutely, yes, he did, um, written the, the latest of the three synoptics, 60 to 62, right? Still alive, saw it himself, telling everybody about it, also writing Acts as well. Same thing with John, the Gospel of John, James, his brother, Peter, and Paul, they all say what? Yes, he did, he's raised from the dead the center of our faith. Paul goes on even further, and he says this, For I handed on to you as, what? 
first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, meaning the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter, right? That's just another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than, this is important, friends, more than, say it with me, 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Not a little here, not a little there, 500 people all at once. There's about 230 people in here, roughly. Double that, Jesus appears. All of us see it, all at once. This is super important, friends. Why? Because most of whom are still alive. And so you say, you know Joe down at the camel shop? Ask him. He saw him. He was there. You know Susie at the purple cloth store? Go see her. She saw him. She was there. Um, well, what about Elijah? Well, he's dead. You know, some have died. But these other people, 500 at one time, we saw him. He's there. And he appeared to James. Then the apostles, last of all, one to untimely born, Paul writes, because he didn't see Jesus until after the resurrection. He appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I would remind you that Paul was a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin. He persecuted the church. He oversaw Stephen's stoning. And it was the risen Jesus that completely turned his life right side up for the transformation of his life and the world. About the resurrection, friends. More than 500 at one time. This isn't once upon a time stuff, friends. This is eyewitness account in the hundreds. In the hundreds. And they would share it person to person. Did you see it? Were you there? I want to take you to somebody who saw him. Boom. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. Now Luke takes this so, so seriously. It's so important to him that he writes to a non-Jewish audience. He writes to a Gentile audience. Gentile simply means non-Jew. And he says this in Luke 2. Maybe you've read this at Christmas time. In those days, a decree went out from who? Emperor Augustus. That all the world should be registered. Now who's Emperor Augustus? Friends, in that day, everybody knew who the, the emperor of Rome was. Is identifiable. You can go back uh, in history now, and Rome will tell you. Emperor Augustus, at this time, Jews will write about it. Christians will write about it. Romans will write about it. Syrians will write about it. This is not once upon a time stuff. This is factual stuff. So this was the first registration when, well, when Quirinius was governor of where? Syria. So if you don't want to read about it in Rome, read about it in the Syrian history, right? So all went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph goes to the town of Nazareth, so time, place, Galilee, and not only there, but then he goes to Judea and the city of David called what? Bethlehem, right? Because he was descended from the house and family of David. And he went to be registered with whom? Mary. You understand this? And she was pregnant with the child. So what Luke is doing is he's saying, look, this person in Rome, this person in Syria, this person from Nazareth who had to go there with this person, that's going to be the Messiah. And if that weren't enough, you go on to chapter 3, and he even expands it from there. This is stuff that we just kind of read over because we don't think it's important. Well, friends, to the early church, this was super important. Because this isn't religious talk. This is history, fact, and date. And some of us in the church just a few months ago went and walked there, talked there, went to the exact places that you can go. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, Oh, Rome has a new emperor now. It's not Augustus, now it's Tiberius. Okay. It's that time when Pontius Pilate was governor of the area. What area? Judea. And Herod on the Jewish side was the ruler of Galilee. Right? So you got the Roman governor, 
the Roman emperor, the Jewish leader, his brother Philip, and the region of Ituria and Trachonitis. Then Lysanias was the ruler of Abilene. And not only that, the priesthood, if you want to check that, was Annas and Caiaphas. And then the word comes to Jesus' cousin John, son of Zechariah, who was the priest. You see, friends, if you ever grew up in a small town, you know what they're talking about. You know John's boy who goes to that church, the pastor's that person, right? This is how they would talk. This is who it is. Luke is saying, friends, fact check me. Check it out. All you got to do is check Rome, Syria, Jews, religion, otherwise. Fact it. Check it. See, this is not once upon a time, but names, dates, locations, culture, political structure, all of it. And the writers' lives were on the line, friends. Absolutely on the line. They find out who's writing this stuff, this heretical stuff, right? Because the Messiah was the core of the Jewish faith that he was coming, right? You can't get that wrong. And so, friends, if you're writing this, I want you to know how this is done. You would take a sheep. You would slaughter a sheep. You would take one side, you would skin the sheep, you'd take the other side, you'd skin the sheep, you'd put those up to dry, and the left side was page one, and the right side was page two. It's called vellum. That's how the early Bibles were written. And then you'd have to mash up some berries uh, or something else to get ink. You'd have to work really hard to get that. And then you would start to write the gospel account. This is very, very expensive stuff. It was illegal and super expensive. And by the time you finished that first page of your account, you're not thinking, oh, I'm writing in my journal. I'll just have some thoughts come to my head. No, these folks, think of it this way. They are username and password careful. Username and password careful because their life was on the line. On sheepskin with little quills. And it's through this, friends, that Christianity made its greatest strides during the 300 years before the Bible existed. Before the Bible existed. Now, in no way am I discounting the power and the role of the Bible. I'm not. But what's it for? It's to inform us, to instruct us for our good works and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to guide us, to train us. Right? So, our action steps. Our founder, John Wesley, for those of you who are Methodist, uh, you, you may already know this. Uh, our founder, John Wesley, in the Methodist movement was an Anglican priest. And when it came to Scripture, he said this, As to all opinions which do not strike at the root of Christianity. What is the root of Christianity? The resurrection of Jesus. So, if we're not talking about the resurrection, we think and what? Let think. So what that means is when you go online this afternoon and you have a Christian friend that says some wacky stuff that's not about the resurrection, what do you do? Let it go. Let it go. You don't have to engage in every argument you're invited into. Amen? Just let it go. If it has to do with the resurrection, that we must agree. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter. Fact check me, right? That we must agree. Other things. We're going to let it go. We're going to grow. We're going to pray. We're going to study. And then secondly, friends, I want to invite you to share your personal faith story this week with someone. Because that's how it works. The Bible can do a lot of things, friends, but it can't share your faith for you. It's not what it does. Sometimes I go to people's houses in our church. Some people invite me. Others don't. And I just show up. But they, and they'll have these Bibles, right? And, and as I'm driving up, this is what I envision them doing. Oh, it's dusty. Oh, you know, I better make it, make it look like I read this thing. Right. So for our third graders, 
this is not going to help them unless you help them. Right? You need to sit down with them, pray with them, teach them, help them know what it means. Does it make sense? It's very, very important. Give my life um, to the resurrection of Jesus. But here's another thing I want you to know. Uh, and I asked permission to do this just a, a bit ago. The Lord is alive. Amen? You understand this? He's alive with us. And, and he's active. And he does stuff. And, and as a preacher, I get to see some of it. Um, and I don't know. You may not even believe this, but I believe this. Um, in the middle of the, the last service, right before communion, uh, I exited out. I had to take care of some stuff. And uh, as, I, as I exited out, I met Ruby here on the, on the third row. Now, Ruby's first time guest to our church, never been here. Uh, she felt led today by the Holy Spirit to come here. I was like, great. And we were catching up. Um, and then I came back in. Um, and then uh, about 15 minutes later, uh, and I said, hey, service will be, first service will be over in about five minutes. Uh, second service will be starting. And then just come on in. So she does. Great. Welcome, Ruby. Um, and uh, then later she's like, oh, you're the pastor. Huh? So, um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, so then I have another client come to me about 15 minutes later and, and he says, uh, do you know anybody who speaks Chinese? And I go, no, why? We don't, have, we don't have any Chinese speakers in our church. He said, well, we have another lady that's, that's come to our church today for the first time. Holy Spirit led her to our church. Amy, here on the second row. And, um, and then I got the great question of, all right, Mark, you want to look like a racist today? Go ask a lady that you met five minutes ago if she speaks Chinese. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, is that really what you want me to do? <laughs> and he's like, yes, that's what I want you to do. Like, I met her like seven minutes ago. Like, I'm stalling. And he's like, no, go ask her. And so I asked Ruby, you speak Chinese? And he says, well, I speak a certain dialect of Chinese. You know, it's not Mandarin, it's Cantonese. What does she speak? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can barely speak American, whatever I'm saying. And so I asked her, I'm like, do you speak Chinese? I said, I'm sorry. I'm so racist. You know, I, I don't know. And she goes, yeah, I do. I'm like, huh. She says, what dialect does she speak? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> so introduce Ruby to Amy. And I'm like, hey. And they start talking, and I understand nothing. And they're friends here. Now, I don't know if that seems odd to you, that in the church called Acts 2, the Bible tells us that people from every nation, every language, came together under the power of the Holy Spirit and understood one another, could speak with one another, could come under the power of the Holy Spirit together. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That the Bible informs us about how we live out our faith together, that the Scriptures are true but alive. Alive, friends. Not dead. Not done. Alive. Thank you for letting me share.